flying, Hella's frozen over, and Leon Haslam is a British superbike champion at last. Welcome to Bike Life. Let's go! Finally happened. Welcome to episode 83 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on a historic weekend in the British Superbike Championship as Leon Haslam finally broke his jinx and became a major champion at last. He is the British Superbike Champion of 2018. We will talk all about the final weekend at Brands, which brought three different winners, one of which was Leon Haslam as he took his first ever victory on a Kawasaki on the Grand Prix circuit at Brands on his way to the title. We'll talk all about that weekend um, and what it means uh, for next year, of course, as Leon Haslam uh, prepares to take that British title with him into the World Championship. Uh, we'll discuss the other winners, other winners from the weekend as Glenn Irwin secured third in the championship with his first win of the year on his final weekend with BY's Ducati. And Richard Cooper took his first win of the season on what may be his final weekend in British Superbikes altogether. Uh, we'll also review all the action from World Superbikes as Jonathan Ray reached a perfect 10 and Jules Clausel built up the barricades one more time to send the World Supersport title race to the wire in Qatar. We will also look ahead to this weekend where more history can be made. It is championship point for Marc Marquez as he chases a fifth MotoGP title in six years. Uh, joining me to look back on all that and look ahead to what is a big weekend in motorcycle racing once again, uh, it's Andre Harrison. Dre, welcome. Welcome back, everybody. And West London may stand up and, and, and applaud. Leon Haslam is finally champion. Cats and dogs are now living together in mass hysteria. Um, I still don't quite know how that's happened, but yet here we are. Um, yeah, I'm back to crown this monumental occasion. Praise it, be. It is, yeah. yeah. Praise be to Dre. It was, uh, he left his church to, uh, to Ryan King to run on Motorsport 101. Uh, this week or last night as we're recording this uh, which we'll get into in a moment yes for those of you who are listening live on discord yeah do not adjust your uh, your sets to your calendars bike live you recorded on a tuesday for once um mm. the glories uh, the glories of a week off work which also meant that you got motorsport 101 even earlier than you ordinarily would um in the week uh, the other places you can find is though uh, facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 on twitter we are at motorsport underscore 101 uh, our youtube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 uh, and our website is motorsport101.com. Um, now, if you would like to back us financially, uh, you can do so at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101, uh, where you're backing at the $5 level and you early access to uh, both our weekly shows, both this and Motorsport 101. Uh, and if you back us at a $10 level, you'll be able to listen in live on our Discord server and listen to these shows as they are recorded, as several of you are doing right now. And we thank you uh, for listening. Uh, Cam, Henry, uh, Brian Glenn and Steve are all listening in right now. Um, if uh, you were with us last night, uh, that being Monday, 15th of October, you will have heard the recording of episode 165 um, of Motorsport 101. Although if you weren't, you can get that on early access right now. And by the time you're listening to this on the download, you will be able to listen to the podcast uh, where all good podcasts are available. Um, it was a special um, uh, of Motorsport 101 as we uh, broke down the uh, future W series. Um, that has been brought in to Motorsport for 2019 uh, as Ryan King presented, joined by Hazel Southwell, uh, as well as a new panellist as uh, Ellie from uh, Formula Incident joined us as well um, to uh, discuss all of that and look back on um, some of the key moments from last weekend with Petit Le Mans taking place uh, and a bloke named Schumacher winning a title just like old times um, mm -hmm. in the Formula 3 at Hockenheim. So all of that on this week's edition 
uh, of Motorsport 101, which is available right now. Um, but let's get into what happened on two wheels last weekend because it was a huge weekend of superbikes. We'll be crossing over to Argentina for their uh, World Superbike weekend shortly. But first, uh, it's the British Superbike finale at Brands last weekend. The triple header to decide the British champion, uh, Jake Dixon and Leon Haslam, were the two remaining contenders. Going into Brands Hatch, Haslam had a 61-point lead. He only needed to finish on the podium to wrap up the championship, and that was assuming that Jake Dixon won the race. Jake Dixon didn't. Uh, we'll tell you who did in a moment. Uh, but with Dixon only in second, Haslam only needed to finish in sixth to wrap up the title, and sixth was where he finished. Um, and it was nice, Dre, given everything that's gone wrong for Leon Haslam over the years at Brands or all the events that seem to have conspired against him and circumstances that have gone against <laughs> Haslam to stop him winning titles that nothing was going to deny him this time. No, this, this, like, you always had a little bit of fear going. Fine, didn't really go to either a good qualifying eighth on the grid for a race one. We were like, uh oh. <laughs> I was a little bit nervous for Especially a second there. But... As well. Yeah, it was like with Dixon on pole. I was like, oh no, here we go. Like, this this isn't this isn't going to be straightforward, is it? Um, it's, it's never really been straightforward with Haslam, for better or worse, um, over the years. But uh, no, he 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 described it himself as the longest race of his career, um, as he was you know just basically just trying to bring the bike home um, during during race one. Um, he was riding a comfortable sick for the majority of that race. You know, didn't want to push it. There was a very big near miss in front of him when I think I think it was uh, Bridewell and I think uh, was it Richie Cooper as well. I think they both went down. Yeah, at either the, side and, of Haslam. It was like it was like he was dodging bullets down at Druids where Haslam was yeah, in seventh. Bridewell was in sixth and Cooper in eighth, or vice versa. They both go off either side of Haslam. Both miss him, and Haslam rides on. It was like. The racing girls are finally smiling on Leon. Yeah, it's like, okay, when, when I saw that happen and I saw Haslam, I just sat there and I was like, yep, he, he's really going to win it this time. Because if he's able to dodge that one, then, then then surely, surely he's found the way around it this time. And he did. And uh, yeah, did yeah, just did what he had to do. Um, you know, bless him, Dixon really did go for it. You know, he, he was he was going for the win, you know, to give himself every chance of keeping his slim title hopes alive. But uh, he was stalled by Glenn Irwin, who would win race one um, for his first win of the season. But um, yeah, just Haslam was able to comfortably bring it home in sixth place. And yeah, again, it was a it was a champion's ride. He knew what he had to do. He never had, he never really looked like he had the pace to challenge for a proper victory. Um, this weekend, apart from race two, because you know we all know the the rain, you know, can throw anything out there, really. Um, but yeah, Hasn did what he had to do and won the title at the end of race one in convincing fashion. Yeah, at the end it was probably yeah uh, Andy Irwin that made the difference as far as Jake Dixon is concerned. Race one, he managed to get in there in second place. We had an Irwin one two at one stage, um, in that first race on the Saturday, and uh, it was that. I don't think he was doing that deliberately, playing sort of rear gunner to his teammate. But in in the end, that was kind of the role that Andy Owen played, and it enabled Glenn to escape a little bit. And by the time Dixon got back into second, uh, there was a second and a half gap, and only four or five laps to make that up, and he couldn't make it up yep. in the end. Um, but yeah, Haslam did what he had to do, wrapped up the championship with two races to spare. Uh, he ties Josh Brooks in uh, in the earliest ever. Uh, championship clinching moment in a showdown doing it with two races to spare essentially winning it in five out of seven races um, mm-hmm. and when we look back on his season Dre he, he didn't start the season 
uh, in particularly stellar fashion because he was only ninth in the first race at Donington Park in what were almost wintry conditions um, yeah. on Easter weekend, and then second in the second race to uh, to Bradley Ray, who of course doubled up at the opening round of the season. Um, and he was only fourth in the first race at Brands Indy on the second weekend as Shaky Byrne took what would be his only win of the season uh, for circumstances and reasons that you're probably all aware of by now. Mm. Um, but since then, Dre, uh, just a quite exceptional run of results where if you take it up until the start of the Brands weekend, where of course he went into defensive, let's close it out mode, from Brands Indy race two back on April the 15th to... The end of Assen on September the 30th, he was only off the podium once. And that was a fourth at Thruxton. Yeah, that's a terrifying run of results. Um, just never really looked like he was going to lose. and Really, either have a, have a weekend where he just didn't have the bike to compete like at Brands Hatch in the regular season, where he was playing second fiddle to the McCams team, really more than anything else and you know not kill was narrowly beaten by jake dixon when you know we all know that's dixon land at this point um he's super good at knock hill um and fruxton has a knack of throwing up unpredictable results because it can all it can all go down to that last chicane and you know ways he can take it and it tends to be chaotic because of the slipstream effect in, is in, is, is inducive to close racing but Haslam was just a, a different class compared to everybody else. Jake Dixon was the only man who was even in his postcode for the majority of the regular season, you know, just racking up the podiums and, you know, you know second tier level podium credits and whatnot, all the way until the showdown started at Alton Park. So, yeah, you, you look at that situation and you just go, wow. Um, you know, Haslam was just dominant. And, you know, we, we, we will talk about Shaky not being there. The more cynical among us will we'll probably mention that. But as, as I've always said, you can only beat who they put in front of you at the end of the day. And and Haslam was exceptional. Just, just, just the class of the field. And no one had a consistent answer for him. Couple of times in there, he went on five race winning streaks twice during that seat during during that season, going into the showdown rounds as well. Um, just just a class apart more than anything else. Yeah, it was a year where Haslam, uh, as he proved right to the end at Brands HGP, proved that he and that Kawasaki package nowadays just have no weak circuits anymore. Um, no. Whereas in the past, Haslam would have. Um, the occasional weekends where he'd struggle when he finished down the field. Thruxton last year was one of those where he, he struggled to finish towards the front. And Snetterton was one last year as well where uh, I remember Haslam being fairly uncompetitive. He doubled up at Snetterton this year, taking mm-hmm. two wins because he won the first of two races at, at Thruxton this year as well, um, beating Jay Dixon in that final corner. Um, and then obviously won at Branch GP. And uh, in many ways, that has been the bedrock of, of his championship. I mean, I, I, I take the point... Um, on Shaky's absence, and, and it is a good point worth making, of course, the, the likeliest challenger to Haslam, because the man who picked into the title last year wasn't around um, beyond, uh, what, the third weekend of the season at Alton Park, because he crashed in testing leading up to the fourth weekend at Snetterton, and because he hasn't Indeed. been seen uh, on a motorbike on a racetrack since, um, has Shaky Burn. Um, but when you look at the level that Haslam's been operating at, and the, the sheer level of consistency of podiums and wins... Even a fully fit Shaky Burn, I think he'd have been closer, but there's no guarantee he'd have beaten Haslam because how do you beat that level of point scoring? I mean, Haslam finished exactly. the season exactly. on 699 points. Um, he took, uh, let me count them up, 15 wins he got um, over the course of the season, 12 in the regular season, and then three more in the showdown, um, mm-hmm. which is which is over half the season. So how do you, how do you beat that level of consistency? Um, and they haven't exactly... Um, 
because uh, I mean, you look at the results on the face of it, you'd think Haslam has just won this championship at a canter. But mm. there are a number of wins, Dre, along the road. When I think back to his Brands Indy win, you know, mugging Glen Owen at the death, um, his Knock Hill win, which is a close fought thing against Dixon, the, the Thruxton win, which went all the way down to that club chicane on the final lap, um, the Silverstone wins, all three of them were by a bike length, if that, um, against three different oppositions over the course of that weekend. Leon Haslam, as much as he's dominated and led from the front this year, he's proven an absolute expert of the clutch final lap head-to-head victory. Yeah, I think that's been the the game-changer in Haslam's arsenal. The one in the season was the fact that he he won races he probably on paper wasn't meant to win. And Hayo had many a many a, a, a close battle and many a close dogfight, as you mentioned, with Irwin, with Dixon, you know, with, with with Bradley Ray on occasion as well, where he's won races he probably didn't have the ultimate package to win around. I mean, Fruxton, we saw it before. Guys like Peter Hickman and Josh Brooks have been stupid fast around there in the past. You know, winning Brands Race 2 in the wet, winning the Brands Indy again, against Glen Irwin. Again, tracks that has them doesn't tend to go particularly well at. He won those two. And yeah, you mentioned it. 15 race wins of this season is an exceptional count, no matter which way you slice it. And Shaky Burn didn't have the best of starts to the season before the Setterton Test injury anyway. And he had the one win in the first six rounds right when Haslam was starting to pour it on. Um, I'm not sure Shaky would have kept up if, if if he was healthy for the whole season. Like Haslam was on a different plane of existence from the majority of this season. That triple header at Silverstone, where he won three tactical dogfights and won all three of them. Um, like, just fantastic racecraft all, way, all the way through, consistently strong pace all the way through, and just a level of experience and now that a lot of the other riders in the class just did not have to be able to match him. Like, as mentioned, like, Dixon is still a little bit rough around the edges at times, but he's come along a, a great deal this year. Bradley Ray was a bit of a flash in the pan for the majority of this season, scored the majority of his points in the first three races and never really got back on that level, unfortunately. He only really had one good weekend beyond that, and that was his double second at Cadwell. Yeah, beyond that, exactly. Just inconsistency all the way through. And, you know, again, it just shows that maybe you're a little excited about Bradley Ray. Maybe next year will be the one where he puts it together with the Hawk Racing team. But Haslam was, again, just a different class. No, there's there's no way, there's no other way of describing it for me. He he knew what he was doing. He Again, he didn't really have a hole in his game. Even Brands Hatch, he picked up solid results in, in the regular season at the Indy circuit. And during the showdown fight, which is the one thing we all feared with Hazlan, he, he was—he's—he's he's now with that race two victory has now won at every track on the BSB calendar, including tracks before that he hadn't won before, like at Fruxton. He, had, he didn't have a Fruxton win either until the season, but he found a way to do so, and that is the beauty of Haslam's season and how he was such a dominant champion was that he—he he had no major weakness, and that's what made him so strong. And with the exception of Donington Park, uh, in the wintry conditions of, of Easter weekend, he won on every track on that calendar this year. Um, not just in his career, but within the course of this year, he won. Um, of course, we had two Alton Park rounds. He won uh, at the first of those. In fact, he won both races at the first of those um, in May. Um, and of course, he won on both layouts at Brands Hatch that we had both the Indy and the Grand Prix mm. layout um, earlier in the season. A um, few interesting stats on Haslam's year, just to uh, put into perspective how good he was this year. 
Um, he was not only the main, uh, the leading point scorer in the regular season, but he was also in the end the leading point scorer in the showdown. Uh, if you take the showdown in isolation, Haslam scored 131 points, which was 25 more than Dixon. Um, we'll talk about Dixon more in a second because Dixon would quite rightly argue that had some of some key incidents like uh, Asin Race 2 gone against him, Dixon might well have outscored Haslam over the course of the showdown himself. Um, but if you take Haslam's points total for the season, if you forget the showdown even existed and just took the points in isolation uh, for the season as a whole, Leon Haslam would have won this championship. First of all, he would have won it at Alton Park back in mid-September, but he would have also won it by 173 points um, from Jake Dixon, <laughs> um, which is which just shows the margin of, you know, the showdown can sort of flatter the, the, the chasing pack a bit, but in actuality, Haslam was so much better than anybody else this year. Um, yep. But also, if you if you hadn't reset Haslam's score, he would have only finished uh, some, what, 15 points behind Bradley Ray in the championship. Uh, Bradley Ray's reset score with his podium credits and the 500 points that he was reset to put him on 5-5-1. If you hadn't reset Haslam's score at all, he would have finished just 15 points behind him uh, on 536. <laughs> utterly um, ridiculous. It, it, it's an incredible run that he had um, in 2018. And it's... It's a great story uh, for Leon Haslam on a, on a few levels. Not just, I mean, you think of where he is in his career now. He's 35, is Leon Haslam. Um, and of course, we've seen Shaky Bone win the British Championship in his 40s um, as recently as last year. But it, it just shows what can still be achieved this late in his career in the British Championship. And it's a, it's a tribute to the British Championship, I suppose, in a wager, isn't it, as well, where a rider mm. could dominate the British Championship and the, the top team, no questions asked, the top team in the World Superbike Championship takes notice and decides that they want to sign Leon Haslam into their team, um, which shows how good a job he's done. But it just shows that, you know, there is no hard and fast rule as far, in terms of what age riders peak at in, in motorcycle racing nowadays. Right. Valentino Rossi is almost rewriting that in MotoGP. That's a shaky burn in BSB. But Leon Haslam, at the age of 35, is almost without question now, riding better than he has at any stage of his career. And he's now moving back into the World Superbike Championship for the second time. And probably everyone is now taking him more seriously than anyone ever did in his first World Superbike run. And he finished as championship runner-up back in that first run. He did indeed. Yeah, like Haslam is riding as well as I've seen him ride. And extra experience has gotten him there at 35. But I think you're right. I think... And I, I could get into a lengthy talk about this, given the state of F1, and, and I've, I've made Drabery videos about how Stoffel Van Dorn and Esteban Ocon are sort of like personifications to the problems that F1 has in handling youth talent, for example. Um, if anything, they could take another page out of MotoGP's book and, and, and the biking world scene, where you've got riders like like Leon Haslam or Shaky Byrne that are riding as well as they ever have, and they're now deep into their 30s. Um, Rossi is still probably a top four or five bike rider on the planet, and he's 39. Um, you know, Shaky Byrne has run BSB titles into his 40s. Max Biaggi run, won a World Superbike title at 41, with Leon Haslam as runner-up, um, believe, it, believe it or not. That wasn't that, wasn't that long ago. So, yeah, no matter which way you slice it, like, there is... You know, there's there's reasons to say that maybe we all shouldn't be looking so quickly for the next Mark Marquez or the next super talented youth product in, in a in a motorsport world where good talent will always rise to the top eventually anyway, even if they yeah, aren't. One of the old sporty cliches in the book, you can't put a price on experience. Exactly. There is a substitute for it. And, you know, Haslam being 35, you know, 
racing now for the best part of 20 years and he, you know, he's he's riding as well as he ever had no reason to believe he won't go to Worlds and still be a solid performer out there as well. I mean, it's not the most ideal of circumstances given his teammate, which we'll get to later mm, on in the show. Yeah, he's quite good. Um, yeah, he's, he's pretty solid at the whole bike riding thing. But um, yeah, he is riding. He's the best I've ever seen Haslam ride, and he's 35. And that says a lot about, you know, experience, about, you know, motivation that he still wants to. So you, you could tell he was desperate for this major championship because it's the one thing that's eluded him over the over the years of being in the MotoGP paddock in some capacity, in the BSB paddock, in the World Superbike paddock. He's done everything you can do as a rider at, at this point and, you know, to get to this point. And he's finally got a major title at 35. And that is a hell of an achievement for a guy that at some point we thought might not ever get there. Well, so I think we all know. feared that this time last year. We, we cannot, uh, and it's part of the story which makes this such a... Such a sweet moment for Leon. What he went through twelve months ago at Alton Park with the the brake failure at the end of the back straight into into Hawthorns, where he wasn't necessarily going to win the championship because it was a pretty close run thing in that final round with Shakey. But that was essentially the moment where he lost it. Um, and you know the scenes which which still send a shiver down down your spine, where Haslam is being carried onto the onto the grid as Shaky Burns showered in confetti and celebrating his championship, and Haslam's carried out there as he wants to offer his congratulations to Shaky. Um, Haslam deserved this moment where he was the one being actually to where it was his moment. He was the champion, um, and you know it, it would have been a crying shame if he'd made it all the way to the end of his career and not won a major title. Uh, but he finally has it now. Uh, the mm. British Superbike champion of twenty eighteen. He would go on to win the second race of, of the weekend. Uh, but before we talk about the the way the championship finished uh, behind him. Um, let's talk about the winners that we had um, on uh, Saturday and Sunday, of course, because Glenn Irwin took race one uh, on the Saturday. And he's been a bit of a nearly man, hasn't he, for a lot of this year, Dre, uh, Glenn Irwin. He's had a number of podium finishes um, over the course of the season. In fact, he had six uh, in the regular season um, prior to the showdown starting and hadn't actually had a podium in the showdown before he won uh, on Saturday at Brands. Um, but it just goes to show... I suppose if we'd forgotten how good he and that how good that Panagali still were, um, for Glen Owen to take what was a, a pretty uh, assured and, and confident victory, pretty much led from start to finish. Yeah, that was as convincing a ride as Glen Owen's ever had. Points out in the Discord, his first ever dry victory, um, believe it or not. So yeah, good for Glenn, man. And again, he's been he's been fighting in there, and he's been he's been in these sorts of scraps before. He had you know six podiums this season already, and yeah, he he did rode well. And I'm I'm not sure how good that Ducati package was in the second half of the season. It never really looked like it was gonna is it was gonna you know be the dominant threat to Hazel like it has been in years past with with Shaky on it, but. Uh, Irwin's done the best he could. He's been consistent pretty much all the way throughout the year, been in the top six or seven or so all the way through. Glad he got a win at the end to, to round off what's been a solid season for him. Um, and hey, third in the championship is nothing to scoff at whatsoever, especially given he had to take on the lion's share of the load for the for the Paul Bird Motorsport team when Shaky got hurt. Like they, It was all in on, on Glenn Irwin for the season. And Irwin, like, almost a bit like Stuart Easton a couple of years ago, proved that, yeah, he was a great rider in his own right too. And he, he, he could lead a team you know, going forward and pick up solid results. And that, you know, it's, a, it's a good endorsement for Glenn because he'll, be, he'll now be running the Bournemouth Kawasaki team. Now it looks like they're going to be clearing house um, with, with Glenn leading the way on that on that package. So, 
yeah, you know, if if if, if he's put him in good stead, and you know, the Kawasaki team is very very good. So, hey, you might even say Glenn might be title favorite going in. Who who knows? Well, he's he's, he's certainly going to be up there, isn't he? I mean, the fact that he's going to be fronting the the Kawasaki Speed Fit team next year, the the team that's won this championship so comfortably, he's got to feel he's in mm. really good shout next year. Um, Absolutely, especially having taken a win, he's just got to be. He's got to make that step from being the occasional winner to being a, a frequent winner, hasn't he? Um, for next season, mm. as we've already told you, Leon Haslam won race two, which was the first of the two races on the Sunday in horrendous conditions. Um, there were there were conditions which were very much getting towards red flag weather, um, mm. with uh, only thirteen or fourteen riders seeing the finish. I think only twelve were on the lead lap, fourteen finished, two of which were a lap down. Um, and the conditions were no much better for the third race of the weekend. Uh, horrendous weather conditions, terrible pouring rain, the kind of weather that really needed superhero-style riding. Call forward Cooperman uh, to da, take da, the da, da, da. in the final race of the season. Richard <laughs> Cooper um, taking what is his second career victory um, in British Superbikes. Of course, he did finally take a win. I think it was his, his other win came out of Brands, didn't it? Um, he did, yeah. Midway through last year. Um, this is a rider, Dre, who um, he's kind of gone under the radar a bit this year, but as he said himself in his post-race winning interview, he's by no means certain of having a spot on the BSB grid next season, and surely a rider of Richard Cooper's class and quality should not be going into the 2019 season without a ride. But that's the problem with Cooper, is that teams don't seem to believe in him. It's really weird because he's been in and out of the top flight for a good you know, three or four years now, but Cooper can ride a bike and he, he he's, he's, he's going to finish 12th overall for the season. And, you know, with that win, he was only a handful of points off some of the bigger, more perennial hitters in BSB, like the Idens, the Buckens, the Lavities of the world. He was in that ballpark for the year. And there's some, there's some good riders there. Cooper is on that level. I, again, the Suzuki package was not the juggernaut it was last year towards the end of, of last season. And, you know, Bradley, I think, maybe flattered it a little bit with some of those podiums well, yeah, I mean, that he it, did you, have. You can't take it out because those are the points he got. But if you take the Donington Park weekend out of it, where, you know, Bradley Ray scored 50 points and Cooper only scored three that weekend, there wouldn't have been much between them in the championship. Bradley Ray would have only been, uh, by my rough maths, what, 13, 14 points ahead of Cooper overall in the championship. Yeah. So, you know, Bradley Ray, you know, you can't take those points away from him, but, you know, there wasn't as big a difference between those two riders over the course of the season, as you may think. De- definitely, definitely. Like, I, I think I think they're definitely closer um, than, 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 than I think the scoreboard may suggest. And obviously, Bradley making the showdown, obviously got all that initial early season hype with, with that double victory um, and whatnot. And, you know, people, people took that, people took that on board going forward. But, yeah, I mean, I don't think Cooper is a million miles off, and he should be in the class because I think he's a very solid rider who, uh, you know, in the wet can, can can ride very very well, which is a nice little X factor to have um, when it comes to BSB. Given well, it's a British Championship, and what can you say? Um, and on, on top of that, he's a solid rider, and again, any guy that can win races in BSB at the moment, he was the seventh different winner this season. Um, to say the least. I mean, why not? Like, I don't see, I don't see how someone as talented as Cooper isn't on the grid for next year. I think it's alarming that he isn't. I mean, we are still somewhat um, in re-signing season because I think you know BSB City season is a, is a little bit later um, compared to most teams. I think they want to see where the showdowns at and then make decisions. And yeah, it's it's not like MotoGP where they're wrapping this shit up in March and April. They're doing this way later in the year, um, but. 
it'll be a crying shame if Cooper's off the grid for next year because he's a very talented rider. But that seems to be the pattern in BSP. It's like there's always one solid rider that doesn't get a spot. Remember Danny Buchan a couple of years ago missing out? Mm, like that yeah. wasn't that long ago, you know? So it happens It happens more frequently than I'd like to admit in British Superbikes. But, you know, there you go. Yeah, Cooper's other win actually came in Alton Park back in uh, back in 2016. He got, he got a second that same year at Brian Sarich. That was the year he very nearly made the showdown um, in 2016. Um, when he was riding on a BMW, went back to Superstock 1000 and uh, challenged for that championship, was only just beaten to that title by Danny Buchan last year um, before coming back into BSB. Um, and, and yeah, a quality, quality rider is Richard Cooper. And, um, you know, I think it would be a real shame if he's not on, on the BSB grid uh, in the top class next season. But we shall see. Um, as far as the top six are concerned, then, it was Haslam who won the title in the end um, from Jake Dixon and and Jake Dixon can certainly depart the British Superbike Championship Dre with his held held high. Um, mm. He goes obviously to Moto Two next season and um, he, he brought the showdown alive, didn't he? I think that's that's the best thing we could say. He he gave some of us genuine hope that the championship maybe wasn't a foregone conclusion with his performances in the showdown. He took pole position for all three of the showdown rounds, um, which is a measure of how good he was um, and. You know, he, he had his fair share of bad luck. He had the, the mechanical, which, of course, cost him uh, in race two uh, at Assen. And then, of course, he crashed in the wet when it was already gone at Brands Hatch. But outside mm-hmm. of that, his performances in the showdown, double win at Alton Park, a second at Assen to Haslam, a second at Brands GP in the first race, and then a third in the final race. If, if Haslam was the clear number one in the pack this season, which he absolutely was, Jake Dixon was a clear, clear second. Yeah, he's he's come such a long way this season. He's proven that he wasn't just a knock hill guy anymore. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like Dixon has is, is, has carried himself very well this season. We forget he's still only 22 years old, Jake Dixon, and you know he was the clear number two man in this championship, and he was the only guy in in Haslam's postcode for a lot of this season. I mean, it helps he's on a Kawasaki in his own right, but he 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 did a very very good job. Exceptionally fast exceptionally talented brave well uh, you know was got, got into many a scrap with haslam even got his fair share of victories in those scraps with him as well great double win in Alton park in the to set the show down to give, you, give people just a little bit of a nudge that maybe it wasn't going to be as easy as haslam thought was it was going to be to win the championship early and during the showdown period so obviously Hassan sort of put pay to that unfortunately but no, no matter which way you slice it, Dixon was phenomenal this season, and I wish him the very best in Moto2, because that is a brave decision to make. Like, like, There's probably no tougher series in bike racing than Moto2, and Dixon is grabbing that opportunity with both hands, and it's something that just doesn't normally happen. It's a dramatic jump, and it's a big leap. I mean, we saw how Taron McKenzie struggled with his opportunity in Moto2. Um, so it, this is a massive jump up for Dixon in that sense, but He's got enough talent to come out of this championship to think, well, you know what? Maybe maybe with the right team around him, with the Nieto team, maybe they can take a decent crack at it because he's an exceptionally talented kid. And yeah, he, he did nothing but carry himself well as, as a consistently very strong rider all the way through the season. Yeah, he's backed himself for next year, which is which is something I like. He's backed his own talent um, for next year, which I think is, is a good move. And Whereas Taron McKenzie was kind of parachuted into that keeper team with with no preparation, he was always on a bit of a high to nothing with the, with that team. Uh, I think Jay Dixon, with a bit of preseason and a you know the testing to go with it, I think he can be uh, a real competitor next year. Of course, he, mm-hmm. he has that bit of a, that triumph experience as well, which may uh, which may benefit him next year. And with BSB, uh, sorry, with Moto Two being such a reset, 
I don't think a rider moving from BSB to Moto2 is necessarily at the same disadvantage he'd be uh, in any other Moto2 season, uh, especially when they say that Moto2 bikes next year are going to be a bit more, you're going to have to ride them a bit more like a superbike um, to get the mm. best out of them next season, which may well favour uh, Jake Dixon. Uh, the rest of the top six uh, the showdown finished with Irwin third, Brooks fourth, Hickman fifth, and Bradley Ray in sixth, which... Uh, uh, for those of you who dislike the showdown, you'll like the fact that had there been no showdown whatsoever, they would have finished in exactly that order anyway uh, in the outright oh. championship, albeit slightly more spaced out um, in the championship. Um, but what the showdown format and obviously what results from it with the riders from seventh backwards has given us is the uh, the added intrigue of the Riders' Cup, the uh, the paperweight, as we uh, jokingly christened it uh, on this show. Um, but... I think this is one of those occasions, Dre, where we're genuinely happy that the Riders' Cup has not only been won, but been won by the rider that it has been won by. Um, because Tommy Bridewell, with his two second places um, on Sunday, pinched the Riders' Cup at the final hurdle from Jason O'Halloran, who, um, much <laughs> like Bridewell, has uh, has had his fair share of hard luck stories this season. Of course, O'Halloran missed four races mid-season due to injury. Uh, Bridewell, oh, missed yes. a number of, Bridewell missed the same four races, but that was because he'd been... Uh, you know, kicked out of his team uh, midway through a weekend. He'd been uh, dumped by the Halsall team. Um, so for Tommy Bridewell, probably one of British Superbike's hardest workers, um, a bit of a journeyman, I suppose, in recent years as well, where he's been lurching from one team to another. Uh, he seems to have found a real home, hasn't he, at uh, the Motor Rapido team? And four podium finishes in the final seven races of the season uh, have taken him to the Riders' Cup. And... Like I say, we sometimes sort of snigger at this this trophy and the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prize in the first place. And Bridewell kind of did himself in his interview. He said, "Hey, I've won the Riders' Cup in a sort of uh, sort of self uh, self mocking kind of uh, fashion." But for the the season he's had and the, the the difficulties he's had and the road he's been through this year, the Riders' Cup is actually a material reward for the uh, the genuine hard work and and good results and good performances that Bridewell's put in this year, particularly in the second half of the campaign. It's a useful present to handle all the contract offers he's going to never to get. Um, so, hey, I say, you, know, you say it's a paperweight and a surprise. I say it's a utility present. It's like when you get older and you get socks and pants as a Christmas present. Like, you go, hey, look, a useful present. I can actually put these to good use. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, Bridewell, yeah, has ridden very, very well second half of the season we, we we all saw the controversy of him being dropped by Housel in a, after a qualifying session all of a sudden and there was a lot of talk in the paddock that he might be difficult to work with and there was fears about that when he joined the Moto Rapido Ducati team later on in the year but he has ridden exceptionally well he is ridden like a guy who should be in the showdown next year um you know podiums left right and center um, strong performances in, in, in wet or dry. He looks like a guy who, again, should be in the top six of the championship next year. Very, very good performances. And again, as you say, given what he's gone through and given the difficulties he's had and given the ups and downs of his calendar year with you know the lows of getting dropped by house and with the highs of an excellent Suzuka eight-hour performance, we still... We still don't. I still can't understate that enough. He was exceptional during the Suzuki eight hours as well, and he came back on British shores, and he's he's got his head down, and he's ridden very well indeed. You know, two second places to close the year, and to give him the Riders' Cup over Haller and by over by two points, I think is actually a pretty fair result because Bridewell has ridden exceptionally well um, uh, over the showdown rounds since he joined the Ducati team. He's been excellent, so you know, props to him. I think he's he's been, I think he's been superb, and yeah, like I, I hope he I hope he's able to. Forward into next year, 
it seems like he's got a pretty decent job underneath him for next year, but we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Yeah, it looks like he's staying with uh, the Motor Torpedo team next season. And I think they're becoming a, um, with every passing weekend, they're becoming much more of an underrated British Superbike team, that Motor Torpedo squad. Because mm. um, we forget the, they were kind of the little team that were punching above their weight when John Hopkins was on their bike um, a year or two back. They were always sort of slightly higher up than you thought they were. And we, we often sort of gave the credit to that. For, uh, to John Hopkins, who we know is a, a world-class rider who's been in MotoGP, but um, Bridewell's doing a good job with that team as well. And just to emphasise how good he mm. was at the end of the season, if you take the showdown rounds in isolation at the end of the season, uh, only two riders in the field outscored Tommy Bridewell in those final seven races, and those were Haslam and Dixon. Um, he was the third highest point scorer with 86 points in those final seven races, uh, which was more than the other four riders who were in the showdown. And that took him in the end to the Riders' Cup by two points uh, from Jason O'Halloran, who did have a podium finish himself on that final weekend. He was third in race two um, behind Haslam and Bridewell. Uh, but with O'Halloran in those horrible conditions of race three, only finishing eighth, that opened the door for uh, Bridewell to pinch the Riders' Cup. Um, two other riders, though, who could count themselves a little unlucky, I suppose, to miss out on the Riders' Cup themselves. Christian Eden is one of them who despite still being in not a good way at all, because he missed uh, the first race of the weekend on the Saturday because he was, he was still pretty banged up. He had another crash um, with his still broken collarbone, causing him a bit of grief. He then came back on the Sunday, finished fifth and fourth in the two races that we got on the Sunday. Christian Eden is made of iron. Um, uh, and Tara <laughs> McKenzie, um, who finished... He kind of had the opposite weekend. He did race in race one, but didn't race in the two Sunday races. He was third on Saturday, then had a pretty bad crash on the Sunday and uh, by virtue of a concussion was pulled out of the two races on the Sunday, which probably cost him the Riders' Cup because he was actually leading that race for mm-hmm. the seventh overall going into Sunday. Um, Christian Eden, we don't know what he's going to do next year, Dre, but we know what Tara McKenzie's doing. He's staying with the McCamas team uh, of 2019 and not the end to the season, his rookie season that Tara McKenzie would have wanted, but he's shown us plenty this year to show that he's going to be a major force in 2019. I think he will be. I think Tara McKenzie's been exceptional. Um, Again, the results I don't think quite do it justice. A lot of DNFs that Sunday warm-up concussion was really unlucky. Because again, Taron was in there with the leaders once again. And I think he he wins the Riders' Cup if if he's able to run both Sunday races. Um, I think he was right up there again. I mean, Brands in the regular season was really where Taron seemed to come alive. Um, you know, we would have had a podium there as well if it wasn't for the late you know, heartbreaking crash he had towards the end of that one. But, you know, again, the lot like Silverstone, Alton Park, you know, Assen, all strong rounds on paper. And a couple of rookie mistakes here and there, which is to be expected, but don't let the Moto2 season fool you. This kid is a talent. And... And yeah, the way he's come around the second half of this season, he's been he's been sensational. And again, another guy is probably going to be thinking showdown next year, especially with Josh Brooks out of the way in the McCamsey Yamaha team. And, you know, obviously with the McKenzie family being as talented as they are, to have them in his camp as well. There's a lot to like about Tara McKenzie for 2019. And yeah, I think he's another guy that'll be thinking showdown at the minimum here. Absolutely. Uh, let's tell you then how it all finished in the end after uh, after a, a fantastic British Superbike season spanning over uh, some seven months. In the end, it was Haslam who won it uh, by 70 points in the end. 6.99 uh, it plays 6.29 of Jake Dixon who finished as runner-up in the championship. Glenn Irwin finishes it in third. 
uh, and top Ducati rider. Of course, he was the only Ducati rider to make the showdown. Yeah, on 588, four clear of Josh Brooks, um, who, despite Glen Owen um, pulling out of that final race uh, due to uh, some technical problems, Brooks could not snatch third in the championship in the end. He finishes fourth overall. Pete Aikman finishes it in fifth uh, on this bit of BMW. And Bradley Ray ends the year sixth overall uh, on 551. Uh, Riders Cup went to Bridewell, uh, 7th overall in the championship on 178 points, 2 clear of O'Halloran in 8th on 176. Christian Eden finishes 9th on 167, and Taron McKenzie ends the year 10th overall on 163, with uh, Danny Buchan and Richard Cooper uh, next up. Of course, Cooper um, was the 7th and final rider to win uh, a British Superbike race uh, this year. Um, right, now uh, I'm going to take a quick sip here of a drink because there's a lot of support classes to uh, round you up on uh, just to tell you who won what um, in the support good, good classes luck with that, in the British Championship this season. Um, but I'll let Dre tell you the first one um, because uh, I know uh, a regular listener to the show, Kev Walsh, is keen <coughs> for us to mention this. Um, the uh, the new British Super Sport champion. Hang on, Dre, I'll lower the microphone from the ceiling for you so you can tell us who won it. And his name... Is Mr. Kennedy? Wait for it. Kennedy! Congratulations to him. Jack Kennedy, the uh, the new British Super Sport champion, um, who basically went into the final race weekend of the season, the double header that they have at Brands, because of course they run twice per weekend. Um, already with it near enough in the bag, he went in. Um, with uh, a 41-point championship lead over Ben Curry in second place with only 50 points to play for uh, at Brands. Uh, Kennedy, um, in the end, didn't need to do anything because Ben Curry didn't score in either race. He, he failed to finish either race in the end at uh, Brands. So Jack Kennedy, who, has to be said, Dre, is a world-class rider in his own, own right on the Super Swap machine. Oh, yeah. He has ridden in uh, World Super Swap before and has had podiums in that class. Um, Jack mm. Kennedy... Uh, winning the title um, and in the end he was the dominant force of the championship he had a run of results actually mid-season where he won 10 races in a row um, yeah. with uh, Brands Indy through Alton Park Snetterton and Knock Hill uh, he won uh, on every single weekend um, he then had a non-score at Brands GP where he uh, actually pulled out of the weekend due to injury um, but outside of that Jack Kennedy actually finished first second or third in every single race he started um, in this uh, British Super Sport season. He was only third once, um, and that was uh, back um, at uh, Silverstone in the second race they had there. He was the dominant force in British Super Sport this season, and it remains to be seen whether we'll see him back uh, on the World Super Sport grid uh, next year, because that's probably on his talent where he belongs. Uh, ben Curry, who's looking like he's going to be the uh, second of the Kawasaki riders um, in uh, the Superbike class next year. He finished the season as runner-up on 86 points. Um James Westmoreland, um, who, if Drake could celebrate a rider from his own hometown celebrating a victory, I can too. James Westmoreland, who hails from the city of Hull, uh, won the final race of the season to pinch third in the championship. Um, <laughs> that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is he pinched it from uh, our old favourite rider, James Espoli. Um, no! Fourth overall. Uh, James Espoli, who finished fourth in that final race at Browns in the wet conditions on Sunday. Westmoreland won that final race to pinch it by two points. Um, so Westmoreland finishes Somebody third overall. Somebody give Rispoli a job for next year, please. Yeah, please. The panic is better with him in it. <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, I cannot say enough. <laughs> one of the most popular riders in uh, in British Championship racing. He is uh, an absolute superstar. Anyone who's uh, got any kind of long history of listening to this show and heard the interviews we've done with him, he is uh, one of the great characters in uh, in British motorcycle Fantastic racing. Guy. So, uh, 
Um, so yeah, someone he find this it. guy a ride um, for next year. Uh, the overall championship date in, uh, in British Super Sport. Jack Kennedy, the champion from Ben Curry and Westmoreland. Rispoli finishes it fourth uh, with Bradley Jones in fifth. David Allingham in sixth. He was the runner-up last year. Sam Wolford seventh uh, in the end ahead of Tom Oliver. Alistair Seeley, um, who's of course a former champion in this class, didn't show up until the uh, summer round at Brands. Uh, but then did uh, race regularly in the final four weekends of the season and won on three occasions, uh, including the double on Assen. Um, if he's a regular rider next season, he will be a championship favourite. Um, he ended the year, despite not showing up until um, you know the end of July, he still managed to end the year ninth overall in the championship on 160 yeah. points, just ahead of Jamie Perrin, who rounded out the top 10. Um, the GP2 class, which um, for those unfamiliar with it, it's essentially it's Moto2 bikes riding within the Supersport class. Uh, Josh Owens won that championship quite comfortably. Um, he also had a string of uh, results mid-season where he won uh, 11 out of 12 races uh, midway through the season uh, in that class. Uh, he won that championship by 49 points from the Dutchman Jural Borboom. Um, so Josh Owens uh, in the inaugural season of the GP2 Cup in British Supersport as they integrate Moto2 bikes into that class. And it was Josh Owens um, who took the title uh, into uh, into the lower classes, into the Junior Supersport Championship, which is essentially Supersport 300. And it was Ewan uh, McGlinchey who won that championship. And he clinched it actually back at Alton Park in the uh, previous weekend of the season. Uh, he saw off British Talent Cup rider Brian Hart by 48 points uh, with Elliot Pinson one point further back in third. Uh, into the uh, British Motorstar Championship, Jake Archer. He'd also wrapped up this championship at Alton Park um, because the Motorstars didn't go to Assen. Uh, Jake Archer uh, won the championship by 63 points from Jack Scott. Uh, between them, those two riders won every single race bar one on the calendar, uh, just to show Yikes. how strong they were. Uh, Storm Stacy, who was the uh, the rider with one of the best names in motorsport, uh, Storm Stacy. Um, he was the oh, only yes. other rider to win a race this season. He won race one at Thruxton. He was the only rider besides Archer and Scott to win a race all year. And he finished the year in third overall, just five points off Scott in the runner-up position. Um, but it's Archer, the Shimoda star champion. Uh, in the standard class, Victor Rodriguez, the Spaniard, won the championship. He'd also wrapped that up at Norton Park, which meant that he didn't even go to Brands for the finale to save money. Um, so he won that championship by 71 points ahead of Thomas Strudwick, who's another rider who you'll have seen in the British Talent Cup this uh, uh, this year. Um, the uh, British Sidecar Championship, which also came to a close at Brands Hatch GP with their double points finale. Uh, if you listened to this show last year, you might remember we wrapped this up at the end of last year and told you about the, Trist- the, the Reeves brothers, Tim and Tristan, who won this championship by winning every single race on the calendar. The clean uh, sweep. They, they clean swept it last year. Well, they weren't around this year, which opened the door for last year's runners-up, Kershaw and Clyde, to take the title this year. Um, by quite a comfortable margin themselves in the end. 169 points clear of Ellison Richardson um, in second place. Um, Kershaw and Clark actually had a run of results where they won 11 in a row um, from Snetterton all the way to Branch GP, which basically put them in pole position to wrap up the title. They won it uh, with plenty to spare. Uh, into the Superstock Thousand Championship, this was one of the few classes that did actually go right the way to the wire uh, at Branch Sass last weekend. Uh, Keith Farmer won it, even though nor he nor his championship rival Billy McConnell finished that final race at Brands on the Sunday because of the torrential rain. They both crashed out. Um, Billy McConnell will be looking back on what might have been in this class because he crashed before Farmer. Um, and had he known that Farmer was going to crash himself later in the race, he might have just taken it a bit easier because he might have been able to pitch mm. that championship uh, in the end. Farmer wins it by 10.5 points. And I feel I have to explain to you why he's won it by 10.5 points. 
um, because we haven't mentioned this. If you if you think the NASCAR uh, format of races is confusing, get a load of this in National Superstock Thousand. Uh, they have three formats of races over the course of the year: a standard length race, a fifty mile distance race, and a race called the Black Horse One Hundred. Black Horse being the sponsors. Oh um, now here's how it works: two fifty mile back to back segments punctuated by a controlled compulsory service period in pit lane. Uh, and they award half points for each segment uh, over the course of the race. Uh, yes, it's as stupid as it sounds. Um, which means that in the first segment of a race, the winner of that gets 12.5 points. The winner of the second segment gets 12.5. So in theory, if you win both segments, you get the full 25 points. Um, That's silly. The race. <laughs> um, and then a bonus five points if you win the second segment and essentially win the overall race. We have a quick restart midway through. Which basically means if he goes to the Superstock Thousand results table for the season, there are so many point fives over the course of this season, uh, it makes it rather silly. Uh, but in the end, Keith Farmer won it by a ten and a half from Billy McConnell, um, who of course is a. They're both riders with British Superbike histories, um, and both riders who will be hoping to be back in that class next year. Joe Collier, uh, he finishes it third overall. He only ended up eighteen points off the championship in the end, uh, but his title hopes ended uh, when he could only finish seventh in race two at Alton Park. Uh, the final win of the season uh, went to Taylor McKenzie, brother of Taron. And if you haven't hey. heard his brilliant victory interview, go and find it. Because um, Taylor McKenzie basically did his entire interview in a Brom accent, um, even though he's Scottish. <laughs> it was fantastic. Uh, so go and find that. Taylor McKenzie winning the final race ahead of Alex Olsen in second. And Michael Rutter finished the final race in third. He is 46 years young. Uh, Jesus Michael Rutter, you think that you, That's you the think name. He's old. Yeah, Michael Rutter, yeah. who's 46 uh, and spends all of his races getting ripped to shreds on commentary by uh, his good friend James Whitton, uh, finished the final race of the season in third place. His first podium of the year at 46 years old. So well done to Michael Rutter. The old war horse is still going strong. Uh, Superstock 600, uh, Ryan Vickers, the dominant champion. He won every single race that he finished, uh, which is all but two of them. Um, he won the championship by 108 points from Joe Sheldon Shaw. Uh, Vickers won the final six races of the season, including last weekend at Brands. Uh, he was the dominant champion. He's another rider that's looking likely to be in the British Superbike Championship next year. Um, the Ducati Tri-Options Cup, which was the one championship that didn't go to uh, Brands last weekend, they finished their year in Assen, and it was Rob Guyver who won that championship by winning the final five races. He beat Lewis Rollo by 102 points, and uh, he's a rider that I'm happy to see win that championship, because an 18-year-old Lewis Sutterby interviewed Rob Guyber for a university project, um, and he, he gave me an interview, so well done, Rob, uh, the 2018 Ducati Tri-Options Cup champion. Uh, that brings you uh, to an end for this British Superbike season, because they'll be back in action uh, in 2019, and so much to look forward to in 2019, with riders from the MotoGP paddock, no less, coming to race in the British Superbike Championship. The likes of Scott Ridding will be turning up. And, of course, Danny Kent, who debuted last weekend, was actually did a solid job last weekend, given that he had mm. no Superbike experience going in. Um, it looks like he'll be a regular BSB rider next season. So, if anything, despite the fact that the top two in the Championship are moving out, Jure, there's every reason why next year's British Superbike Championship can be every bit as good, if not better, as this year's. No, I completely agree. I mean, we mentioned it last week, that the, uh, the talent coming in is, is stacked and plentiful. Scott Redding... Danny Kent on the way in. A lot of guys shuffling around. A lot of potential you know, junior riders could be coming in like Curry and Kennedy as well. Um, there is a lot to look forward to on the plate. I mean, it's easy to be disheartened because we don't know about Shaky's future and Haslam's gonna, Haslam and Dixon won't be there next year. But we still have Bradley Ray, Josh Brooks, you know, Redding. You know, Danny Kent could be coming in as well, who was pretty solid for a first run out. So 
yeah, it's there's there's a lot to look forward to there, and you know, despite the turnover rate here, I think I think there could be a very exciting championship next year as well for sure. Absolutely, we look forward to that getting underway uh, in April next year, where the season opener, of course, next year will be on the national circuit at Silverstone. After this uh, this quick break, we're going to switch our attentions um, to the World Superbike Paddock, um, where we're going to start with our um, World Super Sport Roundup. Uh, where uh, the wall was put up once again. Uh, bring on the wall, they say. We'll bring it on in just a moment. Stay with us. Villacom uh, for the first ever World Superbike Weekend uh, in South America and uh, the Argentine World Superbike Round at the uh, new circuit, the Circuit San Juan uh, Villacom, um, which uh, basically was just uh, near the foot of the Andes. It was a great location, Dre. Um, a spectacular setting um, for the first ever World Superbike Round in Argentina. And it has to be said, although of course we've only got the benefit of TV to basically watch it, by all accounts, a spectacular racetrack too. Yeah, I mean, I, I had not seen this track before before it had uh, been shown on TV, and it's a spectacular-looking place. Location is isolated, still pretty around it. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of a lot of mountains, a lot of hills, a lot of undulation in the track as well. And, you know, a, a, a quite technical, fun circuit as well, and it produced some great racing. So, yeah, I thought it was all fantastic. Mm. I mean, I spent last uh, last Friday at Hull Fair, and I have to say that 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 home straight down to Turn One looks like one of those sort of fun slides you go down, where it it undulates two or three times oh, yeah. on the way down to Turn One. It's a spectacular uh, front straight on TV, and yeah, it was it was a great track where yeah it had a little bit of everything, it had uh, some good overtaking spots, particularly not just into Turn One but into uh, I think it's Turn Five at the end of the back straight, the huge back straight where you have that little left kink and then into a very tight hairpin. Um, so it's a very very difficult corner, but also a very uh, you know a very you know, sort of open overtaking spot as well. Uh, and it produced some great racing, including in World Super Sport, which is where we're going to start. Because um, you probably all know if you even if you didn't watch it, you probably know how the Super Bike Class panned out. Um, we're going to start with Super Sport, and of course the championship that was still on the line going into last weekend. It could have been clinched last weekend if uh, things went Sandro Cortese's way. Um, and although I did even win the race, he'll probably still be happy, Dre, with how it, it went. Although Sandro Cortese wasn't in the end able to take the victory um, in the end of the, uh, the World Super Sport race. He was beaten by a quarter of a second because a certain Frenchman built up the barricades again. Call forth the great rule of Jules Cazelle. It is back with a vengeance. Um, yes, he's done it again. Another fantastic defensive performance from Jules Cazelle, who probably wasn't the faster man out there, but hit the front early on, you know, let the other guys around them beat each other up. I mean, Caracasulo was probably going to be a contender in there, but he was taken out on the opening corner. Um, but it was really Mahias versus Cortese in the early goings on that one. Mahias just didn't have the front end speed, um, you know, to really get up there. So, 
in the end, it was it, the fight at the end of the Grand Prix was basically Clazelle versus Cortese, those two again. But, you know, Cortese tried and tried, but Clazelle was able to hold him off. He might be the best defensive black rider on the planet. I don't know how you how you beat Clazelle. Yeah, like he, is, he is the hardest rider I've seen to overtake uh, in any class. Like if, if, you, mm. if you had one rider that you'd, you'd want to basically defend a lead for your life, it would be Jules Clazelle. Um, and and I have to say, this championship's been fascinating all year. And I think it was Greg Haynes, actually. Um, it was either him or Michael Guy, uh, the two commentators for Eurosport last weekend. Mm. Whoever it was that said it gave a great sort of sort of snapshot, a summing up of this championship this season, Dre. Sandro Cortese, who very much races with his head, and Jules Clouzel, who races with his heart. Yeah, that's a very am way of putting it, because Clazell will ride the nuts off that motorcycle um, and, until he has literally nothing more to give. I, it's not the first time him and Cortese's come to scraps. We had it, we saw it where Clazell went down under Cortese two rounds ago, and we had it at Bruno where they were both off the track at one point, and Clazell still came out in front and still would go on to win that race. He is such a fighter, Clazell. He does not know when he's beaten, and... That might, might get him the championship. And unfortunately, he's in the unfortunate predicament of being six points behind with a five-point difference between first and second. It's a bit awkward in the sense where Cortese can basically follow Clazell home and win the championship in Qatar next weekend. But, you know, you never know what could happen. I think Lucas Mahias could easily play spoiler in that next weekend. Who knows? Oh, yeah, I, but, I, I think it's it's far from over. I mean, first of all, I'm glad mm-hmm. this championship, it's been, it's been brilliant all year in Supersport. Mm-hmm. It's been another fantastic season. I'm glad we get the, the season finale that we, we it deserves. Just like we got last year, of course, where we had the incredible finale of Keenan Safoglu turning up with... Uh, with a patched-up pelvis trying to beat uh, Lucas Mayas to the title. Um, this year, uh, of course, he doesn't have that same story, but if anything, it's even more tense because it's closer between the two on points. It's only six points. And the way Supersport is, given how crazy a number of the races can be and how many competitive riders there are, simply going out there and finishing second is much more easier said than done um, for Sandro Cortese um, next weekend. Um you know, obviously, Clozell's going to go out there and win the race and hope for the best, but uh, it, it's by no means certain that even if Clozell wins the race, I don't think it's going to be simply easy that. I don't think it's just as simple as Cortese could just follow him because I think there's going to be more riders in there because Cortese is going to have to keep his head together and he's not exactly been the best at that on, on too many occasions. If you go back to when he tried to wrap up his Moto 3 title and the falling out he had with Danny Kent back then, mm. um, he allowed the pressure to get to him there. Um, and, of course, we've seen him make mistakes this year. We saw him, the, the clash that's possibly going to define this season at the end, the, the crash he had at Portimao where he scooped up Clouzel, um mm-hmm. and essentially gained himself 11 points. And there was no you know intention to it. It was a crash. Um, but Cortese remounted, Clouzel didn't. And in the end, it was him that benefited from it um, to gain the 11 points. But Clouzel's going to have to play games, isn't he, uh, next weekend? He's going to have to try and slow the pace up uh, to try and enable... The likes of Mayas, Caracasulo, Krumanaka, uh, you know, De Rosa, Kyle Smith, who's got a great record around Qatar. Uh, he's mm. probably going to be up there as well next weekend. Clozell's essentially got to try and lead from the front, defend from a, a huge pack of riders, which we know he's an expert at doing. Oh, and gotcha. Then tr- and then try and basically suck a Cortese into making a mistake. Just one problem with that. Qatar is one of the most, you know open racetracks out there with a 1.1 kilometer 
straight. Because um, L's going to have to really fight hard to defend that lead if that's how it's going to play out in the end. Because it's hard to defend around Qatar because you're so vulnerable if you lead going down the home straight. Um, it might be great. and uh, like He's got to come out of the final corner on the last lap in front. Then he's got a chance. Because the, the, the run down to the start-finish line is relatively short. It's hard to beat somebody off of that via slipstream alone. So, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful on that one. But uh, he's going to have a really hard time of it um, in Qatar being able to defend like he, like he did in Argentina or in other places because he is open to a lot more attack and potential slipstreaming um, in Qatar. But God bless him, he is going to try. We all know that. <laughs> he is, and... Um... Essentially, the the equation is um, if if Cluzel is in the if Cluzel wins or finishes second, he needs a bike between himself and Cortese. Um, mm. a, a win with Cortese in third would be in the championship. A second place with Cortese in fourth would also be enough um, for for Cluzel because there will be seven points between second and fourth. Um, if Cluzel finishes in third, he would need Cortese to be as low as sixth. Um, and then if he needs to be fourth, he needs uh, Cortese to be ninth, and then every place further down, he would need Cortese to be a place further down. Um, and again, Dre, I don't want to make it sound like it's the cortese Cluzel incident in Portimao that's that's going to decide it in the end, but Cortese has been the sort of consistent point scorer this season. He's only won twice, whereas Cluzel has won four times. Um, mm. And of course, if he wins in Qatar by the end of the season, it will be five. Um that 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 incident, for better or for worse, and Clozel hasn't let it go really, has he? It for better or for worse, that could be the incident that really decides this championship. I mean, it it could easily be a a first swing, maybe more than that if Cortese finishes you know, sixth place or low. I mean, because we all know in that Portimao race, Cortese came back and finished fifth in the end. I think it was. Mm. Um, he was able to continue. Clozel was not, and. Yeah, I mean, you don't really want to say a championship came down to that at the end of the day, but let's be real with the championship's probably going to come down to that incident of Portimao because of the massive implications and point swing that came with that. Um, it's not ideal, to say the least. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of sucks that, you know, that could be the defining turning point in this championship um, for Clazell on that one. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to get around that one. I, I just hope we get a good hard fight um, at, at the weekend, so we don't have to think so much about that. I mean, let's be real here. I kind of want Cazel to win the title, if I'm yeah, being honest. Well, I thought we were going to pretend to be unbiased here. Uh, we both want Cazel to win this. He's we been... don't do that on Motorsport 101. No. <laughs> um, he's been, this would be his fourth runner-up finish in the championship. Um, if he if he finishes runner up again, he was and it would be you know the the pattern will continue. He would be the runner up. He's been runner up in 2012, 2014, and twenty sixteen as Cluzel, um, and he would add twenty eighteen to that if he if he finishes runner up again. Of course, Cortese has scored at every race. Cluzel has had two DNFs because of course he uh, failed to finish in uh, Thailand back at the start of the year as well um, uh, in that race, and he actually crashed in the first race in Phillip Island, then remounted to finish seventh. Um, so he's had to make up a, a huge cap. But in fairness, and we'll, we'll probably discuss this at more depth uh, when the championship is over um, in Qatar, but we do need to give Sandro Cortese credit, I suppose, don't we, Dre? Because, you know, he, whilst he's got a lot of Moto2 experience and he's a Moto3 world champion, this is a rider who didn't know he was going to be racing in this series until about a month before the season started. And we should not forget, he is a class rookie. Mm-hmm. 
First year in the class, he's taken to the 600 very, very well in very right from the start. And yeah, as, as mentioned, he's been the consistent scorer and there is no greater weapon to win a title in, 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 in consistency. That's what you need to do in order to win a championship. You can't just be a guy that, you know, wins on occasion and then doesn't do anything else. Like you've got, you've got to be consistent all the way through. And that's what Cortese has done. Every other major contender has either had bad rounds or has made mistakes or had some sort of awful luck before them. Hey, Lucas. Um, and it's, and that's often been the deciding factor in these championship fights. And Cortese has never let up on the pressure. And that is why he's now got this six point lead going into the last round. But the question is, can he hold it? Because, we know Lucas is yeah, Lucas Myers is very strong round Qatar. He'll be one to keep an eye on for sure. And there's other guys that will play a factor in this. Maybe if Clazel does, as you say, ride slowly for the sake of, you know, trying to back the wagon up. Um, you know, Randy Kremenaka, Rafaeli De Rosa are all guys who can get in the mix and challenge for podiums. And if that happens, it's gonna be a very interesting tactical fight for this championship. Yeah, Clazell is going to try everything. You just know it. He's, he's that kind of rider. And uh, yeah, we, we look forward to the finale, the championship finale um, in uh, Qatar um, in about a week and a half's time. He's listening to this. It's uh, not this weekend, but the weekend after uh, mm-hmm. the final weekend of October. And, and don't forget, for those of you that really do want to see this championship finale in Supersport, that in Qatar, they will be racing on Saturday uh, in Supersport. They, the, basically, the race weekend is a day further forward in Qatar. Um, so free practice uh, will be on the Friday. Um, uh, sorry, free practice will be on the Thursday. Super Pole uh, on the uh, Friday, and of course race one of Super Bikes on the Friday, and then race two of Super Bikes and Super Sport race on the Saturday uh, of that final race weekend. Uh, and it is down to two now in the Super Sport because any other riders who did have mathematical championship hopes going in no longer do. Uh, starting Dre with Randy Krumenacker, who is still third in the championship, but he's now 29 points back with only 25 left to play for. Um, and ultimately, you know, the, that brilliant ride that he had at Acid at the start of the year and the win, of course, he had in Thailand where he uh, beat up Mahias at the final corner, they've ultimately been the exceptions rather than the rule, haven't they? Because since that second mm-hmm. Asin, um he still scored every round, but every single finish has been either fourth, fifth or sixth, which is ultimately uh, where about his level is. Yeah, that, that seems to have been the case. He came out of the traps like a rocket, but... Um, ever ever since that bad day at Aston, they've not been able to, you know, to get Krimanaka back up the field. It's been kind of weird on that one. It's, it's just not really worked out for him. Um, and Randy Krimanaka, he's, he's really he's tried to ride well, but it's you know the Bardal team has just, just been a bit meh, and Krimanaka has not been able to find that extra two or three tenths. He would probably need to really get up there. Um, with Cortese, Clazelle, and, and Mahias. And, you know, the, the point scoring has been enough. It's not existing, but it's just there's no real big results that can lift him into play, like Clazelle, who's won five races this season, and Cortese's two, and, you know, you know having a, a multiple podiums. That's something that Krimanaka just doesn't have. And, yeah, it's a shame. I mean, not a bad season, all told, but, you know, not enough to really be a true contender. No, he's uh, he's the only other rider besides Cortese to have scored points in every single race um, this year. But they've been, apart from his uh, his three podiums in the first four races, they've all been fourth, fifth, and then a sixth um, in Argentina. So ultimately, um, just not enough, you know, not enough uh, podium uh, scoring races to uh, really give him a championship shout going into Qatar. Uh, Lucas Myas uh, also 
out of championship contention, although he was out of it going into Argentina. Um, two podiums in the row, though, for him now, having gone some uh, seven races uh, without finishing on the podium uh, after his second in Thailand back at the start of the year. Um, and it has to be said, Drake, he's... I mean, he was suffering, and he wasn't the only one, suffering with uh, with food poisoning and illness on Sunday um, because there were other riders who were ill over the course of the weekend as well. Um, but we kind of... I don't know whether this is just on one weekend or whether this is a story that's continued through the season, but did we perhaps in Argentina get a little bit of an insight into why Mayas has been ultimately unable to match the likes of Cortese or Cluzel, particularly when we saw Cortese overtaking him? Maybe. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe it's a setup problem because Mahias was giving up a lot of top-end speed on the straights on that one. Now, Cortese was able to pass Mahias with ease. It's like he had um, it, here. Yeah, and something that Mahias just did not have. I don't know what the deal was with that. Um, again, maybe it's a setup problem. Maybe they thought, oh, we, well, you know, we're going to think about acceleration and corner exit by running a shorter gearbox. I don't know if that was the plan from GRT. I don't know if it's maybe a, a performance balanced issue. Maybe I don't, if, I don't know if Lucas is bigger. But I think Scortese is a really big bloke, so I don't think that quite adds up either. Because Scortese is quite quite big for a, for a bike rider. So I don't I don't read too much into that one either. So yeah, it's it's a bizarre situation. Again, maybe GRT got the setup wrong on that one that ultimately came back to bite Mahias in the rear end on that one because, you know, he just ended up falling short um, of the really big hitters again and again now out of title contention um, and now down to fourth overall um, on this one. Um, it's a shame, really, because, again, like Mahias, is, it's kind of a weird season. He started really strong like, like we expected him to. Then, you know, after rumours of that car crash in, in, in Thailand, he looked like he was a bit ropey. And he's just started to find his old form again, was going to win at Portimao. And of course, we all know how that one ended. And now he's back on the podium again. It's been a weird season of ups, of ups and downs and inconsistencies from Mahia. So, you know, it looks like he could be moving up into into the, into World Superbikes next season. So I don't think he's going to read too much into it. But uh, kind of an, uh, kind of an eyebrow-raising year from, from, from Lucas on this one. Yeah, it was. If you look at the uh, top speeds uh, over the course of the race uh, from Sunday... My ass uh, was giving up six kilometers an hour um, to Sandro Cortese um, on on that main straight. Uh, Cortese's top speed was 273 k's an hour. Um, Mahias's was 267. Um, and you know, when you look at some of the other some of the Yamahas, like Gradingos, Cluzel's teammate was hitting 272. Krumanaka was hitting 272. Uh, Cluzel was actually hitting 267 as well. So he didn't have the top end speed, uh, much mm. like Mayas, but he was. Uh, yeah, he was just about firing off on that final lap because you saw Cortese on that last lap just dragging him in on that old straight. Yeah. But they just about ran out of straight before uh, before they hit the brakes for the hairpin because uh, I was able to hold him off. Um, but in the end, this is what it leaves us with, uh, a championship with uh, only two left. The race winner, though, uh, as we've told you, was Cluzel uh, taking his fifth win of the year um, last uh, weekend. Uh, from Cortese in second, Lucas Mayas uh, in third. That's back-to-back podiums down for him. Thomas Gradinger, that's fourth for the second race in a row, uh, on the second of the NRT Yamahas, the Austrian in fourth. Corentin Perilari, who was uh, the rider responsible for knocking Karakisulo off on the first lap, although it looked like a racing incident, it has to be said. Uh, he finished fifth. Uh, Krumanaka sixth. Kyle Smith, the first non-Yamaha in seventh on the CIA Landlord Insurance Honda. Then the two Pachetti Kawasaki's of Hikari Okubo and Hector Barbara, uh, while Loris Cresson, 
uh, finished in 10th position uh, on the second of the Calio Yamahas. He's the teammate to Cortese. Uh, the rest of the points went out to Ayrton Banavini on the MV Augusta, Luke Stapleford on the Profile Yamaha, Hannes Soma, the Estonian on the Race Days Honda, uh, Curtis Stange, who's the German on the Go 11 Kawasaki, and the Hungarian Peter Sebastian on the uh, second of the Landlord Insurance Honda bikes. He took the final point in 15th. Shout out to Raffaele de Rosa, by the way, who's a uh, brave uh, chances of uh, staying in title contention finally ended last weekend because his MV broke down again uh, finally oh. MV uh, well, came over all MV again uh, and he broke down and he's now out of championship contention uh, unfortunately which is uh, kind of what we're expecting it's amazing that he was in the championship hunt for this long uh, but mm. he is now officially out of it here's how it looks then with one race to go Cortese leads by six points from Cluzel 189 players 183 Krimenaka is third on 150 Lucas Mayas is fourth on 135. Caracasulo drops to fifth now on 132. Uh, with DeRosa sixth on 128. Kyle Smith is seventh on 76. Um, so he leads the second class, if you like, of those not on Yamahas. Uh, and Rafael DeRosa's MV, of course. Uh, Gradding is up to eighth now on 74. Stapleford is ninth on 57. And Anthony West, who's still uh, basically in a bit of limbo as uh, we try to thrash out what's happening with his doping uh, transgression, he's now mm. down to 10th on 51 points one race to go and that is at qatar uh, in around 10 days time uh, now into super bikes um and the two world superbike races that we got uh, at the new elvillicum circuit and more records tumbling at the feet of jonathan ray he becomes the first rider ever to win 10 consecutive World Superbike races breaking the record previously held by Colin Edwards in that incredible run that took him to the 2002 title um, ahead of Troy Bayliss, where he won the final nine races of that season. Um, Jonathan Ray, the first rider ever to win 10. And we'll start with his race one victory first, Ray, before we come on to race two, because there were very different circumstances behind that one. Mm. Um, but his race one performance, he'd been beaten to pole position by Marco Melandri, and Marco Melandri was sensational in Super Bowl. He set two laps. Uh, that would have put him on pole position. He was on pole by a full four-tenths of a second. But mm. Jonathan Ray basically hit the front at turn one and never looked back. And even when we saw some rain starting to fall towards the end of that race, that only seemed to exacerbate the gap between Jonathan Ray. And uh, any rider that can win a World Superbike race by some nine seconds clearly is several levels above the rest. And even in a season where Jonathan Ray has been you know, hitting new levels of dominance to win a superbike race by nine seconds. Destruction. Um, absolute destruction. That is the best way you can... Yeah, like Jonathan looked like the fastest man by a country mile right from practice. There is no ifs or buts about it. He was sensational. Um, he, he just completely dominated the race. Um, and... Yeah, to win a to win a superbike race by nine seconds is absolutely bonkers. And Marco Melandri is no slouch by any stretch. Again, he had that he had that four tenth of a second fantastic pole lap, and it put him in good stead. But yeah, we all saw it. Like, geez, like Jonathan just took off from turn one, and you know, no one was like once he gets that race pace going at the front, no one's beating him. And it's just, he knows exactly how to manage his race. He always got the, the extra three or four tenths on pace above anybody else. Um, where once he gets that early lap momentum going, no one can stop him. And that was another case of him doing that just then. Just 
completely dominant. No one had a, no one was in the same postcode as him. And like we thought this might be the one track given the unknowns that Jonathan might get pegged back a bit. He ends up just he ends up winning by arguably his most dominant margin of the entire season. Because of yeah, course, yeah, the, uh, the best, uh, the fastest, I suppose, don't they? Uh, mm. Around you, Drax, and uh, yeah, he won in that first race by nine point one seconds from from Marco Melandri in second place, who clearly wasn't as confident as Ray was when we saw drops of rain starting to fall uh, in that second half of the race. Um, race two, though, um, had a much different story behind it um, because uh, Charlie Hiscott uh, approached Jonathan Ray on the grid. Um, to interview him at the start of race uh, two. By this stage, we already knew what the problem was with him. Uh, but Jonathan Ray told us himself when uh, he was asked how was he feeling, and he said, "Not great. I spent all last night hugging the toilet seat." Um, oh food lord! Food poisoning had struck uh, overnight for Jonathan Ray, and uh, he said he'd done three laps in the warm up and he was feeling fatigued. Um, he'd be able to rest up before race two, but um, not even that could stop him, Dre, uh, in the second race and. It was probably it was one of those races where, as as Ray admitted himself, this was probably the race where it was set up for the race to reverse grid to really have an effect because of how tight that first sector is at the start um, and how mm. difficult it is to find your way through. And to be fair, it did take Jonathan Ray about four laps to get himself up as far as second place. Um, so he had a few moments. He had a, a bit of difficulty passing the Yamahas and the Ducatis of Davies and Melandri. Um, but once he got into second place even though Chavi Forrest was three seconds up the road, I think we still already knew, even at that stage, what was coming. <laughs> yeah, just... God, just uh, Jonathan and it again. To not his usual hyper... Where he's, you know, on in third by lap one and whatnot. It took him a little bit longer this time, but... It, you'd think, right, this was like the golden ticket for Xavi Forrest to win, the finally win a Walter Morris. He had a two-second head start by the end of lap three, and he still got reeled in and beaten by a landslide. This man's not fair. Yeah. And he, like, if you watched that race, does it, did it look lucky he had food poisoning to you? Because no. it sure as hell didn't to me. No, he didn't um, slow down as the race went on, did he? Yeah, no, he didn't slow down. In fact, he was put in early celebration early celebration wheelies before he'd even gotten um to, to the home straight so that was the level of dominance that he had displayed on this one from the popular and uncharismatic jonathan ray um to 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 win his 10th world superbike race in a row and again he made it look so easy i i i, I no one's got an answer for me i think at the moment he is as completely unstoppable as we've ever seen in world superbikes and of course race two would also seal Kawasaki winning the Manufacturers' Championship for the fourth year in a row. Um, that factory is a juggernaut, and it was a great excuse for Kawasaki to break out even more celebratory t-shirts. Yeah, Good for you, fellas. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll come on to that in a second. But yeah, Jonathan Ray, again, people, he is a genuinely funny guy. He put on a, an Instagram story on the uh, on the Monday uh, where he, uh, I think the words were, he, he used the uh, the uh, gust of wind emoji to represent, um, I think I think you can all know what he's representing, where he said, I can finally wind emoji safely now um, on, the, on the Monday uh, to represent the uh, the problems he was having overnight on the Saturday night uh, in Argentina with the food poisoning, which, uh, as I mentioned, had, uh, had struck Lucas Mayas. It also struck uh, Alana Fellows, who does the uh, Pat Fermi interviews. Um, for World Superbike, she was unable to do those yeah, on the Sunday because she was also you know, unwell. Um, you know what's quite funny about that? I saw Jonathan's Instagram about how great the 
Yeah, well, well, everyone, everyone who uh, Tom Sykes, even as recently as today, was uh, was Instagramming about um, you know having some more steak before he departed Argentina. If you go to Argentina, you've got to have some steak, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, but yeah, <laughs> clearly uh, something that Johnny Ray ate disagreed with him. Um, but uh, to be fair, we kind of saw it afterwards, didn't we? On the on the podium on the Sunday, he mm. looked spent. Um, he, 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 he struggled. Still. He was looking like he could barely drag himself onto the top step of the rostrum. He was that fatigued and tired out. Once the adrenaline had finally sapped out of him, and he looked in a, in a really bad way. Um, but but yeah, ten consecutive World Superbike race wins, which as as, as I mentioned, is another new all time record. And he is going to have the all time points record once again, unless something you know, some twist of fate, some terrible luck befalls him in Qatar. He's going to break the points record again. Um, next weekend uh, in Qatar, which would be another incredible, incredible achievement in a career of them um, for Jonathan Ray. And I was I was discussing this after the recording of Motorsport 101 last night off air. Um, that what do you think about it? He's up to seventy, I think it's seventy career wins now, or seventy-one career wins in World Superbikes now for Jonathan Ray. Mm. With the addition of extra races for next season and the fact that he's got a two-year contract anyway with Kawasaki. By the time his contract's up in two years' time, Jonathan Ray is surely, Dre, going to be... He's going to be into three figures of all-time World Superbike race wins, isn't he? I mean, it, it looks that way. I, it, it does... I genuinely think 100... Um, it, it, it's, it's like with an extra race next year, and it doesn't look like anyone is going to stop Jonathan going forward right now he's he's on a different plane of existence compared to anyone else in in world superbikes at the moment and like if the panigale v4 from ducati is not a rocket ship next year then look out ray could you know probably win about 80 percent of the races on the table um you know we, we're gonna have to wait and see yeah, it might be the um, up next year yeah god the way the way it's going i, I wouldn't completely beyond the realms of possibility but um yeah the way it's going right now with three races a weekend and you know a sprint race only helps jonathan out because he is so aggressive off the start line in races then i, I can only think of sprint races up him i have to wait and see how the grids are formed before i really read too much into that right now but the way it's going with two more years if that panagali isn't leaps and bounds better than kawasaki's current ninja zx10r then what are we talking about here? He's going to win the next two championships at a, at a cakewalk. Um, so, yeah, the way it's going right now, he's, like, the again, a lot of people are praying that Alvaro Bautista and the Ducati V4 bring some heat to the table. Otherwise, it could be another long season next year. Yeah, it could be. He's won 75% of, of the races uh, this year. He's now up to 16 wins uh, from a possible 24, and of course he could extend that to 18 wins um, in a year uh, in Qatar, which again would be uh, an all-time record um, in the World Superbike Championship. And uh, yeah, just working it out at the, at the rate that he's uh, that he's going next year. I mean, what 75% of the wins next year? We're talking, yeah, we're talking close to 30, a 39 race season. You know, he's he's looking at winning 29, 30 next year, isn't he? <laughs> Um, oh, for God's uh, sake. Uh, this, uh, this rate, which means he could hit a century of World Superbike career wins uh, next year, um, which is a terrifying thought. Um, mm -hmm. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, because as Dre mentioned, Kawasaki wrapped up their fourth consecutive Manufacturers Championship um, last weekend, um, which of course isn't just uh, secured by Jonathan Rates uh, across three riders. But actually, when you when you consider the breakdown of points, 
because the manufacturer championship is basically the one rider per manufacturer scores points and it is the first rider that finishes per manufacturer mm -hmm. jonathan ray has been the first kawasaki home in every race but four of them uh, this year um sykes has been the first kawasaki rider across the finish line twice uh, which was the very first race of the season in Phillip Island, and then the one he won at Assen. And Top Rec Razgatioglu was the first Kawasaki rider home in that race at Donington where he finished second, and then the race at Bruno where neither Ray or Sykes finished. Um, other than that, Ray has been other than that, Ray has been the first Kawasaki rider home anyway uh, in every single race. Um, but Kawasaki deserve a lot of credit, don't they, Dre? Because obviously, Jonathan Ray can't do it alone. Um, and and he's he hasn't done it alone. He's got Pereira, his his left his right hand man, who's been. Such a trusted uh, crew chief for him over so many years. Uh, and Kawasaki, essentially, uh, as we discussed before we started in World Superbikes, are getting bang for their buck because they've decided over a number of years that they are going to prioritize World Superbikes. And it's much like Mercedes in Formula One. You know, they are spending the money and they are getting, they are getting the value for the money that they spend. And you can't really criticize them for that. It's a business at the end of the day. That's, that's, that's a motorsport for you. We are what wins on Sunday. Unlike all the other factories like Ducati and Yamaha that have resources, you know, channeled in elsewhere um, from other places, obviously Ducati and their prototypes and Honda and Yamaha, they have prototypes too. And, you know, they, they have that to worry about. Kawasaki's all in on World Superbikes. They're all in on this. It is their number one investment. It is their number one way of generating revenue. I mean, if you ever watch see the races in america kawasaki get a lot of ad space during those motorsport races and the guy that's riding their bikes every time is jonathan ray he's treated like a god back in japan because of those of the success he brought back to the factory team why would kawasaki spend 10 times what they're spending now in worlds to come back into moto gp and be mediocre like there is no point to it they carved out a niche for themselves in world Superbikes and have basically decided to be the big fish in a small pond, and it's made them money because they can now say, undisputedly, they make the best road racing superbikes on the planet. And they, they now have once again won both domestic in the British title, you know, and the world title again in world superbikes as well. Then they have a fleet of, 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 they have the last five world champions in world superbikes now, if you include Tom Sykes. And a very talented top rack waiting in the rings, ready for his big opportunity. And they've now got the dream team of having the reigning world and British champions on their bike for next year. This is big deal stuff. And Kawasaki are going to be breaking ground in all sorts of places with, the, if this keeps up. And you know, they were unlucky not to have a better time at, at Suzuka at the eight hours as well. But that, I, I have no doubt they'll probably try and bring Ray and Haslam back for that next year as well. Um, they have a lot to be happy about right now, and they are crushing it in terms of competition. And, you know, being the big fish, there is inherent value in that, especially compared to MotoGP, which is still ludicrously expensive, even with doing it helping out, and it's just not wise as a business venture unless you're KTM, who have money to burn. Simple hmm. as that. Yeah, and have an energy drink uh, bankrolling a lot of their, uh, their mm -hmm. efforts as well. Um, yeah, Jonathan Ray, of course the dominant Kawasaki rider as he has been for most of the year. But we have to mention uh, the next best Kawasaki rider, certainly in race one anyway, uh, Toprak Razgatioglu, who um, without the uh, deficit or the uh, you know the lack of experience that he has at other tracks compared to his rivals, that's not exactly a problem when it's a new track and everyone's starting from zero. And we saw how competitive Toprak could be uh, on the Saturday. What a tremendous ride he put in. And just what, a, once again, what an electrifying rider he is to watch. 
Oh god, yeah. Um, so, there's something about Top Rack that is just incredibly entertaining about him. Like when the rain was coming down in the second half of race one, he was backing that thing in and sliding everywhere. Every third corner, it was, it was like, he's going to crash. He's going to crash. How is he still upright? It's like, it's like he was channeling his inner Mark Marquez for the entire second half of race one when the rain came down. He's a crazy man. Like That is like, that is crazy man shit from Top Rack, Razzcatioglu. And he is a spectacular rider to watch when he gets it going. My word, he again, he was another guy who was fast all weekend long, um, had the confidence to learn this new track very, very quickly, and in race one was sensational, was able to you know come out of that that, that second group of 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 you know of hims, Davies who sadly binned it, you know, Laverty and Sykes. He's the one that came out and broke that field um with the bike almost being ninety degrees on the straights by the time the race was over. But he got there in the end. Sensational performance from Top Rack and a nice reminder of that just how talented this kid is. Again, let's not forget he is still only twenty one. And he is still a world superbike rookie. Um as well. Um so so look out for him next year when we, we hope he's gonna make that next step up and um, be a, a genuine podium contender quite regularly. Essentially, Kawasaki next year, I think, will want Toprak to be what Forres has been um, for Ducati this year and be that sort of you know rider who can take advantage when the factory riders aren't quite on their game, which admittedly, Kawasaki's factory riders very rarely aren't on the game, uh, in mm-hmm. the case of Jonathan Ray. Um, but yeah, Toprak's having a tremendous season, really, when you consider his rookie. He's up to eighth in the championship now. Um, which essentially is the best of the rest behind the the big seven, if you like the the top two, uh, the top three factories of Kawasaki, Yamaha, and Ducati, with their factory riders plus Forres, who's a bit of a sort of factory rider in um, in in drag, basically with that Barney team. Um, top rack's been the next best rider uh, of this championship this year, which um, is a measure of how well he's been doing uh, as a rookie. Um, but speaking of Forres, um, he didn't quite maximise the race to reverse grid pole because he finished second in the end. But I think given how good Jonathan Ray is, that pretty much was the maximum on offer uh, for Xavi Forres uh, in race two. Congratulations are in order to him. If you think this is a prize worthy of congratulations, he is one of the best independent rider for the year um, in World Superbikes. That sort of mini title that we have for the uh, best rider in an independent team um, with uh, Xavi Forres at that Barney Ducati squad. But it's clearly, Dre, not enough to secure him a spot with that team for next year because Ducati are going to place Michael Ruben Rinaldi in that spot for next year. And the fact that a rider of Xavi Forres' calibre, who's done what he's done this season, um, you know, the, the the number of podiums he's had, a second place, as good as that was last weekend in Argentina, and that he can't find a spot on the grid for next year, is a crying shame. I don't get it. Like, how good would Xavi Forres have to be to warrant that seat i don't understand he's come such a long way this year that was his fifth podium of the season in a year where he he really cannot do any more he is he has won the independent championship he has dominated it ahead of top rasgatti by over by over 80 points he has dominated the independent championship this year over top rack and some of the other concession riders that are in there right now like he i i he was challenging for wins back at Aragon. He was right in the mix there at race two in Aragon before he'd been. He was leading that race when he crashed. I don't see what you get by by putting Ronaldo on there for the whole season, thinking he's going to be better, because I really don't think he will. No. I think Xavi Forez is, is, is a top three or four rider in the series 
just without the opportunity to really, you know, maximize his potential given where he's at at Ducati right now. And if, if I'm World Superbikes, I don't know how half the paddock isn't lining up to take him at the moment. I don't understand it. Um, he is riding at an exceptional level. Um, he really can't do much more of what he's got at the moment. And yeah, just I just find it very disappointing that no one thinks he's good enough to ride in that series because I think he absolutely is. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, he, he, I don't quite know what his other options are in terms of other championships because you know rides in the grand prix paddock are quickly drying up we have seen him of course um on a motor gp bike as recently as last year where he substituted um f- uh, within one of the uh privateer ducati teams around bizarro time last year um and did a solid job there too you know he's a, he is a quality rider and I, I think he's becoming another victim of the the attitude that Moto GP teams have towards this paddock, towards this World Superbike paddock. They just, I mean, Forrest has ridden in Moto Two before, and basically didn't pull up many trees. But I would turn around to anyone who looks at that and say, "Well, Chevy Forrest is a much better rider now." I mean, he was he was last in Moto Two back in 2011. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, we're talking seven years ago, and you just need to look at guys like Leon Haslam, who we've already discussed too. Just because the riders into their 30s doesn't mean that their best years are behind them. It doesn't mean that they're not still improving. Uh, and Forrest, right. is, Forrest is in the form of his life at the minute. And you, know, there are, you can only probably say with certainty that there are, I'd say, three riders this season who've had better seasons than him. And that's probably Ray, Davies and Vandermark. I mean, you, you could make a case for others who are ahead of him in the championship. But I, I wouldn't be able to argue to you, Dre, with absolute conviction that... Tom Sykes, Marco Melandri, or Alex Lowe's, all things being equal, have been as good as Forrest this year. I genuinely couldn't. Um, and, and I think, and I think that, he's, I think he's had a terrific season. And the fact that he's, he, he's potentially not going to be on the grid this season and uh, next year, again, as I said, is a crying shame. I mean, I mean, what, what do you think on that? I mean, genuinely, outside that top three, I can't, I can't even ride who's been better than him. Pound for pound, you may have a point there, my friend. Um, yeah, that's. That's an interesting point now. I mean, if you want to look at it from, like, what does the gut tell me? Who do I think the best rider is? I think given the resources available, their overall performances over the over the course of the season, because, like, Melandry's not been impressive outside of Philippard, and he's been up and down all year long. Sykes has played second fiddle to Jonathan all season long. He was okay in the block leading up to the summer break, and... Then he threw his toys out of the pram after Bruno and has never really been on the same wavelength since um, his departure was announced. And Lowe's has been quiet this year. I mean, he had the win in Bruno race two, but only two other podiums for the season. I've been He's been outclassed by Michael Vandermark this year. So, yeah, the way it's gone. Um, yeah, I think you can make a case to Xavi Forres as has been you know, one of the most impressive pound-for-pound pound guys this season. There's been a guy that, you know, probably deserves a little bit better in the championship than where he is. And again, riding for that junior team, the Barney team, has probably not helped him compared to the resources that some of the other guys around him in the championship have. So, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a big case you can make for Jeffy Forres in that regard. Mm, and we, we hope he finds something um, for mm. next year because he certainly uh, deserves it. Um Here's how the race is finished then. Jonathan Ray, uh, the winner is one from Melandri and Razgatioglu, uh, completing the podium ahead of Forez Laverty, who was fifth on the Aprilia. Tom Sykes, sixth on the second of the Kawasaki factory bikes. Alex Lowe, seventh ahead of Michael Vandermark in eighth. Uh, Loris Baz, ninth. And Leon Camille, tenth. 
Um, only 14 finishes, so not all the points were handed out, but the other four point scorers were Florian Marino, who actually had a very impressive debut weekend in World Superbikes on that Triple M Honda until he broke his leg on the Sunday, um, which was a real yeah. shame. Uh, Roman Ramos, 12th. Max Sheep, who is the new replacement for the rest of this season for Jordi Torres. Uh, he was 13th on that MV. Uh, and then Gabriele Ryu, um, who's become the youngest ever point scorer in World Superbike history. Uh, with his fourteenth place on the Pedicini Kawasaki uh, in race one, race two, Ray won again. This time though, by only three point uh, three seconds. I say only three point three seconds. It's still a big margin in bike racing. From Chavi Forres, uh, with Malandri in third, he beat Chaz Davies uh, down into fourth. With Sykes fifth, Lowe's sixth, and Top Rack, who was up in the podium positions early on, slipped to seventh towards the end. Uh, Lorenzo Savadori eighth. Um, with his teammate Eugene Lamity crashing out of this one, Michael Vandermark 9th, and Jake Gagne 10th. Uh, Loris Baz, uh, home favourite Leandro Mercado, Roman Ramos, Gabrielle and Ryu, uh, they completed the point scorers with, again, only 14 finishes. Championship standings, though, with two races to go. Jonathan Ray leads it on 520 points. Um, he is uh, just the 172 clear of Chas Davies in second place. Um, the big story really going into Qatar in this class is who's going to finish his championship runner-up. It's between Davies and Vandermark. Uh, there is 24 points separating them after both. It has to be said, Dre, had kind of poor weekends in Argentina. Yeah, just not particularly strong, was it? I mean... Vandermark was the strange one. I mean, Davies could explain it away by saying, well, I crashed in race one, but Vandermark was just straight up slow. Just uncompetitive. There's no, there's no way of getting around. Well below par for what should be going after these days. Um, Lowe's, again, was better than him all weekend long and very odd. Off-cut a weekend for Vandermark there, and Yamaha in general probably was quite below par for the weekend. It was in, I don't think anybody thought Top Rack would be that good. I mean, Laverty was was solid this weekend, of course, until the crash in race two. Um, again, just a bit of a miserable time in it for Laverty at the moment, really, to close out the year. But, uh, yeah, very under par for Yamaha, given the way their season's played out. Maybe it might be just a blip of the new circuit. We'll see what it's like in Qatar. Mm. Championship standings then beyond that. Uh, Tom Sykes is fourth overall on 294 points. Um, he's just eight ahead of Malandri as they battle for fourth and fifth in Qatar uh, next weekend. Uh, and Alex Lowe's is sixth on 232 points. Um, just to emphasise how good Jonathan Ray has been this year. We've had 24 races now. Jonathan Ray has won 16 of them. No other rider has won more than twice this year. Davies, Vandermark and Malandri have won two each. Sykes and Lowe's one each. Uh, Chavi Forres is seventh and, of course, is the independence champion for the year. He's on 227, so he's only five behind Alex Lowe's. Now, he could still pinch sixth overall uh, next weekend. Uh, Rask Atiyoglu's eighth on 145. He's level with Laverty, but he's ahead of him on countbacks. He's had uh, a second place. Eugene Laverty has not. Uh, Lorenzo Savadori is tenth on 133. Then comes Loris Baz on the BM and Kamiya on the Honda with Jordi Torres 13th on 98 points. And, of course, he won't score again because he is now a MotoGP rider. And MotoGP is where we will talk next then as we uh, we round up this week's show in the time we have left because let's look ahead uh, to this weekend. Um, and ahead of the Japanese Grand Prix, Dre, there's been some good news for the Japanese rider in the MotoGP class, Takaki Nakagami. Um, this isn't really news in, in as much as we probably knew this was going to happen anyway, but it has now been confirmed officially that Takaki Nakagami will be staying with the LCR team for 2019. Um, and it has to say, it has to be said, he does deserve that that retention with that team. Because although you could argue that his Moto2 results were were not exactly 
the results of a rider who was banging on the MotoGP door. He had the the couple of wins, didn't he? But he you know, he wasn't exactly challenging mm. for a Moto2 championship in his time there. But he certainly, in his time in MotoGP, justified the faith that LCR and Honda have put in him. Yeah, he's been one of the better rookies so far. This, you know, I I I think he's solid. I really do. And again, as you say, he was never a top tier Moto2 prospect coming through the ranks. And let's be honest, I loving a lot of it was down to Dorna wanting a Japanese influence in the championship again because the country struggled to produce top flight talent in the last decade or so. But he's been solid. He's he's done a good job. He's plodded along quite nicely. And you know, it's never easy learning on that new. I mean, it's Frankie Morbidelli's finding out he's in the middle of the Rookie of the Year fight right now if, if he's siring. Um, but Nakataka's been has been solid. He's done good jobs where he can. Um, and yeah, I, I don't see why you don't give him another year and see what he's got. Yeah, he'll be with LCR next year alongside uh, Cal Crutchlow. Um, and the other piece of news that has broken, the other rider signings for next year that have been confirmed leading up to this weekend have been at Grassini. Um, in Moto3. They've confirmed their Moto3 lineups because they're clearing the decks uh, for next year because uh, Jorge Martin is going to Red Bull KTM uh, in Moto2. Uh, Fabio Di Antonio is going to speed up in, in Moto2. Um, their lead rider, we'll start with Dre because he's the one that we actually know a bit about. Gabriel Rodrigo um, is going to Cassini and uh, he's got to be a rider. I mean, he's, what, is he sixth in the championship this season at the moment in Moto3? I mean, he is yet to win yet. Um, but with the likes of Martin, Bezecchi, Di Antonio, and Bastiani all moving up, Gabriel Rodrigo, having joined the Grassini team, has got to be thinking championship next year, hasn't he? Or at well, least a yeah, championship I mean, it's challenge. A, you'd think, right? Rodrigo's been in and around the, like that semi-top tier for quite some time. And Grassini's a big outfit that has a knack of producing top flight level riders on like Bastinini, who you know, has been a perennial force in Moto3 for quite some time now. So, yeah, you'd think, on paper, like, Rodrigo must be thinking title challenge. And he's getting to that point where he's becoming quite an experienced figure in the series. And, like, the good results have really got to start coming soon. Mm, yeah, they have. And he's he's that rider that you always tend to see in the leading group um, in races. I mean, you can't miss him because he's been on that RBA bike with the uh, the bright blue, white and orange livery on it. Um, mm. But he's he, around the time last year when he got his first pole position, he suddenly became a very good qualifier um, in Moto3. He took that first pole at Bruno last season, then followed it up with another in Austria the weekend after. Um, and, and as I mentioned, he is well, he's seventh in the championship at the moment rather than sixth. Um, but he's he's had some consistent results. He's been you know in the top six on several occasions. He was on the podium in uh, Barcelona at the start of this, uh, this year, which was his first ever podium uh, in Moto3. Um, and as I mentioned, he's he's one of the leading riders in this class that is still going to be around um, next year. Um, because if you look at the championship standings as they are at the moment in Moto3, um, Martin, the championship leader, is moving back. The top four are all moving up, with Martin, Bezzecchi, Di Antonio and Bastianini all going into Moto2 next year. Aaron Canet, we assume, is sticking around in Moto3, as mm. will Lorenzo Della Porta. Um but they're the highest ranked riders still in, and then it's Rodrigo. Um, so Moto3 next season looks, I mean, it's wide open at the best of times, but it does look wide open for next year. There is no obvious uh, championship favourite. I mean, you'd think it might be Canet, but you, we had him as favourite this year, and look what he's done. So 
you're not quite sure what he's going to do next year. So, Moro 3 is going to be fascinating this year. And Rodrigo will feel he's got every good as chance as anyone else uh, challenging for that championship. His teammate is an Italian named Rossi. No pressure. Um, it's mm, Ricardo no, Rossi. Uh, he's going to be joining him. He is 16 years old. He won't turn 17 until March next year. Uh, or Ricardo Rossi. He's been riding um, in the uh, CEV this year, the Junior World Championship. He's currently 14th in that championship because um, he's riding for the Leglise Academy team. Um, and uh, Fausto Grassini has decided that he's going to put his faith in him. And, you know, you've got to say, Jamie, I mean, we don't know a great deal about Ricardo Rossi, but I think what we do know is that if you're a young rider moving into Grand Prix racing, there are a few better mentors to bring you up through the ranks than Fausto Grassini, are there? Yeah, Grassini is a great guy. He's great for bringing the talent up like that. And if 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 if, if you're going to be a few better in the paddock, you'd want the uh, Fausto Grassini in there backing you up. So, yeah, I mean, not the best run of, of record or results. But again, we are talking about a 16-year-old here. And, mm. you know, you are chucking him into the deep end by throwing him into this Moto3 World Championship, the most competitive series out there in bike racing. So it's going to be hard, but he's in good hands. So let's see what happens. Mm. Uh, another young Italian out of the uh, Junior World Championship that's going to be making his debut next year, uh, well, was going to be making his debut next year, is Celestino Vietti Ramos. Um, well, the reason he's not making his debut next year is because he's making his debut this weekend uh, at Mategi. Oh. <laughs> he's stepping in at Sky VR46. Uh, for Nicolo Bulliger, um, who, of course, is stepping out of their team to go to Moto2 next year with VR46, uh, leaving his spot for Vietti Ramos in Moto3. Um, but this is a bizarre one, Dre. Uh, Vietti Ramos will be riding this weekend because Bulliger has had a, quote, domestic injury at home, which apparently mm. he fell to a glass table at home. Oh, jeez. What, what are you Italians doing in your spare time? Like, like I'm just going to... You know, did, did, did they play wrestling? Is that oh. it? Was he chokeslammed for a glass table? I think, it, I think it's our fault for asking of Nicolo Bulliger. Is there any more bad luck this guy could have this season? Turns out there was. Why, why did we test it? Um, we, we shouldn't be testing these things so hard, you know? Just saying. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, uh, Bulliger, we don't know whether he's... Because the problem he's got is that we're now in that stage of the season, which um, if you if you like getting up in the middle of the night, is, is a great time of the year. If not, it's a bit of a nightmare. Uh, where we've got mm. three consecutive weekends uh, in the Asia-Pacific part of the world. We have Mateki this weekend, Phillip Island next weekend. Um, and then the following weekend after that, it's Sepang in Malaysia. Um, so if you have a, a pretty bad injury, uh, you're likely to miss three races, uh, given how quickly they all follow each other. So Bulliger, we might not see him again until Valencia. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Uh, but of course, this weekend, it is the Japanese Grand Prix at Bategi. Uh, and it is the first championship point for Marc Marquez. Moto2 and Moto3 cannot be decided this weekend. Um, they could, if uh, results go in favour of Banyaya and Martin this weekend, they could be in a position where they could be wrapped up in Phillip Island the following weekend. But mm. it's MotoGP that we're focusing on this weekend, Dre, because Marc Marquez could be a seven-time world champion uh, come Sunday afternoon uh, in Mategi at the home of Honda. I mean, he's won two of his championships previously at this circuit. Will he win this one? I I hate to be that guy, but I think we have to save the t-shirts for next week at Phillip Island. Um, and I know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a desperately long wait. Mm. Um, but I, I, I feel that Ducati are still the best overall bike in the field. And I still get the feeling that I think Dovi will hold off Marquez for one more week. Mm. I get it. And, 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 and,
Yeah, exactly. I know it it feels like it's a nice tall glass of Delane, the inevitable. Um, but I, I think Ducati is a bit more of a versatile bike for this sort of track. I think Marquez is going to have to ride over the limit again if he wants to win it. Then again, it'll probably go down to the final corner again. And well, at this point, who knows what's going to happen there? If it's Dovi v Marquez 5 at this point. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. Um, I'm, here <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it too. I mean, like, if, if, if we get a dramatic finish like that one again, then hey, I ain't got the slightest. So it's it's bound to be fun. But um, I, I my gut is telling me Dovi for this weekend with, with Marquez probably second or third, because I think Lorenzo will be back this weekend and he'll be keen to get back on winning ways after his, you know, his, his second half of the season has been terrible by his standards. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, think that, I, I think that's going to be, I think Dovizioso will win this weekend and, and keep it going um, to Philip Island. Uh, the, I suppose the big sort of intrigue, the big question mark we have going to this weekend I think it's a question they'll be asking themselves, Dre, and it's a it's a question that Matt Oxley's tried to answer in a great feature that he's written this week. Um, mm. Is which Yamaha team is going to turn up? Um, anyone's guess? <laughs> I mean, Yamaha are going to. I don't think they do. I mean, yeah, I think Yamaha are an interesting here because saw it in Thailand they were much more competitive again. They were back to their back to their old selves again. That was the closest they've come to winning a Grand Prix in almost a year and a half. Um, so, yeah, it was nice to see Yamaha back at something near their best, but a lot of people were quick to point out that it might have just been the track that uh, and the, the track well. and the conditions and the tyres. It was, again, like like David Emmett described it last week as a Goldilocks bike. A bike's got a very narrow operating window. If It's, it's got to be just right. It's got to be not too hot, not too cold. Tyres have got to be, you know, relatively good, you know, not too soft, not too hard. If they can find a way to make the harder compounds work, then the Yamaha seems to be more competitive than they, than it than it seems. So, yeah, quite right. I mean, on I mean, I think a lot of it was down to Thailand as a track. If they're strong at Mategi as well, then that's a positive sign that Yamaha might have found something. But I don't think you find half a second a lap in bike racing that quickly. I'd be surprised no. if that's the case. No, we shall see. I think I think what we can say is that if you know, based on what we think the Yamaha's big weaknesses are, Mitegi will expose them uh, if they still mm-hmm. have those weaknesses in terms of getting out of corners and being able to deliver the power, which the Yamaha have been struggling with so much of late. So we'll see how they get on this weekend because of course Valentino Rossi's got his own battle on to try and finish third in the championship at the moment. Um, I mean, technically, he could still catch Dovizioso for the runner-up swap, but Dovizioso has been pulling away from him in this second half of the season. We shall see. Whatever happens, we'll be back next week for episode 84. Uh, Could we be discussing a new MotoGP world champion? We shall see. We also have episode 166 of Motorsport 101, and that begs the obvious question, Dre. We will be discussing a new Formula 1 world champion. Well, technically, it's not new, but, yeah, I mean... I said it on Curious Cat earlier today. At the time of recording, it's probably going to be Hamilton's coronation. I mean, for those guys that are slow on the maps, I'll keep it simple for you. If Hamilton wins, which he has won five times at the Circuit of the Americas now, 2012, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Um, so, yeah, if, if he wins for the sixth time at Cota this weekend, Sebastian Vettel has to finish in second to keep the title alive to Mexico the week after but the way ferrari's been the last three or four rounds and the way mercedes has dri- have driven their cars and valtteri bottas has even given up a win for the culture to help hamilton in the course what are the odds of that happening um pretty quite unlikely so 
I mean, the, I think we're going to be witnessing Hamilton's coronation this weekend. I mean, he loves the circuit of the Americas. He's won a world title there before in 2016. So 50, I should say. He, he won his third world title there um, at, at the circuit of the Americas in the past. I mean, it, 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 I would not put it past him. If he were to win title number five on home soil, um, I'm sure Ferrari will do everything to save their performances for next year. Um, so whatever happens at the Circuit of the Americas this weekend, we'll be there. I'll be back for that next week as well, um, for sure. But uh, episode yeah, 166 of Motorsport 101 coming from the Circuit of the Americas and the obviously the United States Grand Prix. Busy time coming obviously with that and Mexico back-to-back as well. So episode 166 of M101 next week. Yeah, look forward to that. We could have both a five-time Formula 1 champion and a five-time MotoGP champion um, to discuss next week. Of course, Mark Marquez, if he wins his title, it would be his seventh Grand Prix World Championship in all classes to go with his Moto2 and his 125 titles. Mm-hmm. He'd be two behind Valentino Rossi uh, if oh, he does Lord. that, which is a scary, scary thought if you wear yellow um, most of the time. Whatever happens, as I say, we'll be back next week to um, to discuss all of that. Uh, between now and then, though, you can find us at the usual places, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101, at motorsport underscore 101 on Twitter. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, and our website is motorsport101.com. And if you like all of our content so much that you'd like to back us financially, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. $5 backing earns you early access to both this show and motorsport101. $10 backing earns you access to our Discord server and the chance of listening live. And we thank all of you. That have listened in live tonight uh, as we uh, as we celebrate the new British Superbike champion British Superbike Championship finally goes the way of Leon Haslam the pocket rocket is finally a major champion we will talk to you all again next week